It's a pleasure to <clears throat> give Dharma talks here. Uh, first off, you laugh at everything. That's nice. Because you're so deprived throughout the day. They're most saying, why did the chicken cross the road to get to the other side? Ha, ha, ha. Um, this emphasis on seeing life and practice as one thing, um, it's been done before. It's actually an ancient attitude. And I want to acknowledge that uh, my first teacher of awareness meditation was a, an Indian gentleman named Jay Krishnamurti. And so from day one, I've been, I've been brought up this way. So I've never had to breach a gap between a formal practice and sitting, which I value immensely, retreats and so forth, and the rest of life because he started us off that way. But also, it brought back a memory. I, was, I wanted to acknowledge it. He's been dead for some time now. Uh, it isn't, the, the people that you speak to are not always so quiet and so This was many years ago, and I've forgotten the name of the, I'm not sure, it was a large auditorium in New York City, and there were a few thousand people, and he would come out on an elevated stage and sit in this very simple, plain chair and give a talk for an hour, and that would be it. So he came out, he sat down, and there was lots of uh, <clears throat> movement and uh, noses being blown and all kinds of shuffling and this and that. And he was waiting for everyone to quiet down, and it didn't seem to happen. So finally, he, he, said, uh, he said, could you all please blow your noses, clear your throats, and shuffle your feet in unison and get it over with? <laughs> so people did it. <laughs> And then it, was, then it was like you guys. Yeah. Um, so we're not done with the, uh, the old Chinese cook in Dogen yet. Um, because <clears throat> uh, their approach liberalized or extended the view of practice from the way it was done in India, which was largely monastic of a certain kind. Um, and here, what was considered monastic was enlarged to include uh, doing cooking, farming, and so forth, uh, labor. Whereas uh, originally that wasn't done. And uh, so if you read a lot of the, the Zen literature, I told you about Pei Chong, a day of no eating, a day of, a day of no work is a day of no eating. Um, and you read, there's lots of it in, in Zen poetry and so forth, but it all has to do with um, what is enlightenment, uh, drink your tea and eat rice. What is enlightenment, chopping wood and carrying water. Um, these are all interesting, but they leave out a lot. And of course, we're, the main thing is people of a certain relationship and so forth. But uh, it accomplished a lot. And so the attitude change that I feel we probably need is one that is much more appropriate for us, not to discredit what's come before us, but to adapt it to our situation. Uh, for example, 
uh, in that same period in China, there's a famous uh, lay teacher called Layman Pang. And his, uh, he and his whole family were meditators. And he and his daughter attained, apparently, a very high degree of enlightenment. And there, what they did is the family took all their worldly belonging, except the absolute necessities, put it on a, bar, a boat, and sank it. Which, to me, and I, I, we were all impressed. Wow, that took a lot. But then I realized it's a very different model than what I think and that I think that I'm about to suggest and uh, will become perhaps even clearer tomorrow or Friday or tomorrow when Matthew uh, has the Q&A. Because that um, <clears throat> approximates the, the monastic life. That is, what it is suggesting is the fewer possessions you have, the more spiritual you are. And that's one way to look at it. But to me, that's a convention and no guarantee of anything. Having done a lot of training in monasteries, these forms can be very, very useful. And for many people, or some people, they are. But simply having very few objects is no guarantee of anything, nor is having a number of objects, which can be a hindrance and can be an indicator of a mind that's really quite, they would make the distinction between worldly and spiritual. Very strong, the lines were drawn very, very hard. Black and white, very clear, worldly and spiritual. Um, but the approach we've been taking, and Dogen adds to it, Dogen uh, brings to it, is that in the process of carrying out an activity, if it's done with a certain attitude and wholeheartedness, uh, this whole distinction between worldly and, and spiritual, or sacred and profane, becomes irrelevant. Because uh, the activities of the world get done, and if you just look at it, if you just look at, let's say, a cook, who hasn't had all the instructions that we've been going over and practices, they could be a master chef. It could be Julia Childs. But that doesn't mean that it's dharma. It just, it's, it's a wonderful skill, and many people enjoy it and benefit. So there's something else that's added, and it's on a number of levels. And uh, I'd like to get to some of that today, but a little bit more about the, the kitchen and eating. Um, <clears throat> I mentioned Ayama Roshi, who was a nun that I spent a little bit of time with when she came to the United States, a very wonderful teacher. She's, if you recall, a couple of evenings ago, um, she quoted the CEO of a Tokyo company who uh, told a story of this cleaning woman who, uh, was, who, who took great pride in cleaning the toilet. And it was her note to the person who was sending graffiti that put an end to the graffiti. And so uh, she, she also, at one point, said when she was a young nun, um, her, uh, the abbess of her monastery, uh, in response to, to a question, said, a nun's mouth should be like an oven. And she said she understood that to mean, which anyone who's been in certain kinds of monasteries knows is so, is that you eat whatever you're given. In other words, it's like an oven. What you throw in fancy wood, twigs, rotten old wood, uh, whatever you throw in there, uh, it all gets burnt up. And so she took that for years to mean just eat what you're given. And that is one level of meaning. But later on, she realized that what her, the, the woman who became her teacher, this abbess, was, was getting out, they included eating what you're given, 
was that um, it had to do with the mind. And so it's exactly what choiceless awareness is about. Uh, I know the term has confused some of you, some of you are annoyed with it, and so forth. I'll try to make that really clear. It's not esoteric. I didn't get it on a mountaintop or a cave. And if you like other language, it's fine with me. Open attention, free attention, free roaming attention, whatever you like. <laughs> I'm on a food trip, OK. Are the eggs here from free roaming? No. <laughs> um, so what she said, the, uh, literally what happens on the level of, let's say you throw all the different kinds of wood, and the furnace uh, is non-discriminatory. Uh, it just burns up whatever is in there, creates the heat, uh, a thermal energy. The thermal energy enables uh, people to cook food. It enables people to keep warm in the winter. And so it transforms the wood into something uh, very, very useful for the people living in a monastery. And what she discovered, the deeper meaning of a nun's mouth should be like an oven, was that <clears throat> awareness, no matter what comes in front of it, uh, it's equal, because that's what's there in the moment. And that issue came up again and again in the discussion groups, because that's a difficult idea to make your own, because we do have strong preferences. Choiceless awareness means you give up your choices. Whatever is there, that's what you're aware of without grasping or pushing away, because it's there. So um, if we move to that level, the, uh, the choiceless awareness, the openness, the training is to be able to bring the same quality of attention to whatever turns up in front of you. Some of that is interesting. Some of that is boring. Some of that is frustrating. Some of it is inspiring. Some of it are, are long-term uh, long difficulties that you've had. Some of it uh, tremendous hope and love and joy, hate, loneliness, fear, the full range of whatever turns up. You all get thrown in the fire of the mind. In other words, that quality of consciousness. So the analogy is something like this. Um, when awareness touches that seeing energy that Matthew was getting out a few evenings ago, the seeing energy touches whatever it is that's in front of it. Here's the seeing energy. Can you see my hand? A little bit. It's, mindfulness is not just the word. Mindfulness is simply a label for a quality of energy that's extremely refined. Where is it? It doesn't weigh anything. It doesn't have a color. You try to grab it, you can't. And yet, it's potent. And the more refined, see, in spiritual practice, in Dharma practice, in mindfulness practice, the more refined the seeing becomes, the stronger it is. It's not like the more you do this and your muscles get bigger, the stronger you are. It's quite more subtle and refined and supple the mind becomes, the more power it has. So the seeing energy, here's fear. The seeing energy is the oven. So the fear comes in contact with the seeing energy. And the seeing energy, now the, the fear is also not a word. That's F-E-A-R, throw that out. And it's just the energy that we label fear. So that energy is raging. The energy of seeing interacts with it. And something 
you could call it a kind of alchemy, something quite beautiful can happen, especially as the awareness becomes more refined, stable, and non-judgmental, and with no agenda but the seeing. It's not trying to get anywhere. There's nothing next, it's just this. So what happens is there's a transformation, and we've been emphasizing what is. What is meaning the fact of this moment. What is actually happening in this moment. And probably by now you've seen that the mind prefers what used to be or what should be, a future or a past. Anything but now. And even when it, when it stays in the present moment, it makes up a whole bunch of stories about what the present moment is, which is, again, a filter between us and the actual present moment, which uh, the purpose of the, of the practice is to become intimate. It's not detachment. Detachment would be a struggle with attachment. They're like opposites. Non-attachment is, a much, is more appropriate. Non-attachment means opening up, receiving, intimately, but in, and in a non-judgmental way. And the practice of Vipassana meditation is the practice of gradually, or however, however it takes, to expand, widen our capacity to receive whatever turns up in this intimate, non-judgmental way. Or it's, you, you're not looking at it from a, from a mountaintop with binoculars. Quite the contrary. You open yourself up. It's you. It's all you. If there's fear, the fear isn't out there and it's attacking you. It's you taking care of you. Your awareness is uh, it's a kind of uh, interesting. It's one part of us taking care of another part of us. It's like a mother and a child. Okay. So the awareness interacts with what is, which is a fact. And the energy of seeing touches what is, and in the process of fully being with what is, which in and of itself is an accomplishment, you go beyond what is. You transcend it. That's what makes it a Dharma practice. Uh, Vipassana practice, the Buddha Dharma, is not about self-improvement. Many of us, whether we know it or not, probably are are interested in self-improvement. And some self-improvement comes along with doing this practice. Just by by being aware and paying attention, uh, there's a certain polishing of our personality and our character that can certainly come about. And I don't mean it's trivial. But that isn't the main goal. First of all, I don't think you can perfect the personality. You're issued one when you come, come on the stage. That's it. You don't like Larry? Too bad. <laughs> I, the supply room just gives you one. And then it can be polished. You can become a little more polite, a little kinder, um, a little bit more of this, a little bit more of that. But the personality itself, because it's, 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 a, it's not a fixed thing, it's in itself is a process of change. And it's worth polishing it up and fixing it up and making it more livable with for you and for the people in your life. But the practice, although inevitably we have to deal with the psyche and whatever condition it is, and that's choiceless awareness must begin there, the mind-body process, uh, it takes us beyond it. So it's not so much self-improvement as <clears throat> self-transcendence or self, it's letting go of the self, not being caught in any notions that we consider to be me. So just for the moment. 
So um, Oyama Roshi uh, uh, points that out. And so you can see on a larger scale, what was being said in the monastery was that every activity uh, deserves respect. It, this particular teaching emphasizes the cook. But if you read more of these teachings, as I mentioned, it includes administrators. It includes no one's left out. No activity is left out. Uh, no, uh, no ingredient is left out. No pot or pan is left out. And so that's on a larger scale. Now, then when we come to choiceless awareness, what we're learning is to just surrender to the way it is. So it's the same principle, only in a microscopic level. Now, microscopic in the sense that you're working with your own mind. Are the two interrelated? Of course. That is, if, you have, if your mind is all cluttered up and full of conflicts and struggles and contradictions, and in addition to it exhausting, it exhausts us, an enormous amount of psychic energy is squandered. And that affects the physical body as well. Uh, and that's what we bring to our activities. Those are the choices we make that comes from that mind. We can't do any better than the equipment we have. If our glasses have the wrong prescription, that's how we see the world. An ancient Indian teaching, it's seeing a rope as a snake at dusk. Let's say the sun is just going down, and it's just a rope, and you see a snake. Well, if you perceive it as a snake, your actions are going to be totally different, inappropriate. What about if it's the other way? If it's a snake and you see it as a rope, whoa, dangerous. So uh, seeing is the art of pure observation is central to what we're doing, because the real insight is synonymous with accuracy of seeing. So that more and more, what we see is, I'm not going to give it a word. It's just what's there. Just this. This is it. In the meantime, the mind is spinning out endlessly, telling you what's going on, where you're going, who you used to be, who you could be, etc. So we're getting to know that. And people get discouraged. Haven't some of you felt discouraged? It showed, of course, we all do. We look at our mind, my God, it's a zoo. <laughs> you know, just a simple breath, especially some of you are newer. Some of us who've been around the block for a while, we're jaded. We already know that this is true. It's all over the place. It's cascading. It's wild, like a drunken monkey leaping from one branch to another in search per forever for bigger and better bananas. Well, that's what we start with. And think about it for a moment. We hear a lot of talk, and who wouldn't want this? Uh, for peace in the world. Some of you are wearing a t-shirt. Inner peace, outer peace? Right. Peace in oneself. Peace in oneself. Peace in the world. Um, let's say, I don't know exactly, what is it, 6 billion or 8 billion people on the planet right now? Let's, uh, whatever. Let's say 6 billion, okay? 6 billion egocentric, confused people <laughs> with incredible power because science and technology is brilliant and wisdom is puny, tiny, underdeveloped. Uh, how can that, how can you have a peaceful world? The world is going to look the way it is. We're lucky it's not worse. <laughs> so it's not that, uh, that we're leading a, uh, some kind of pilgrim, uh, not a, uh, we're going to convert everyone. If we change ourselves, we'll change the world. I don't have some kind of messianic image that 
Vipassana is going to save the world. Vipassana, Zen, Tibetan Buddhism, that's the answer. Sometimes it seems like people feel that, that we're spreading the Dharma like it's peanut butter. It isn't. <laughs> uh, you know, it's, not, it's, it's hard work. And the world is the way it is because the mind is the way it is. Um, there's a Jewish uh, teaching, of course. <laughs> I've been encouraged to give a few of those. And one, someone wants cowboy dharma. I'll try to. I like cowboy films. There's a lot of wisdom in it. All right. um, this uh, a Jewish gentleman in Krakow, Poland, uh, he, he needs a very beautiful new suit for, I, I'm not sure what, it doesn't matter, it's just a story. <laughs> Someone made it up a long time ago. Uh, for a very important occasion. So he goes to the number one, the best super duper tailor in Krakow and uh, tells him what he wants. And this tailor who's famous says, okay, come back in four days. So the person comes back in four days and says, still not ready. Come back tomorrow. It comes back, it's five days. Then it becomes six days. It's still not ready. Seven days, it's not ready. Eight, it gets to 10 days, something like that. Finally, the suit is ready, and the tailor gives it to this gentleman. And he tries it on, and he said, it's magnificent. It's absolutely beautiful. Thank you so much. It's way beyond what I thought was possible. But it took you longer to make this suit than God to make the world. And the tailor says, yes, you're right. But did you take a look at my suit, and did you take a look at the world? <laughs> okay. Some of you didn't hear that one, did you? <laughs> yeah. I'm kind of going to the bottom of the barrel here. Okay. Okay, so now we're, so choiceless awareness, or whatever language you like, is about, um, opening ourselves up and learning how to be with life as it is in all the many shapes and forms, some desirable and wonderful, not, some not. The oven image, you know, I don't think you should take that home with you, especially in this weather, but it, it, um, can we learn? Uh, and that's, that's a, a, a large part of what we've been attempting to do here. Uh, and Jim's trying to get you to come back to this posture that you're doing. Matthew and I are trying to do it, and all the groups. The content is varying, but we're trying again and again, come back to what is, come back to what is. Come and there's resistance, and we don't like it. Okay, and, we just, and we're unrelenting, and we'll continue to be, because that's where the transformation comes. The gold is in this mind and this body exactly as it is. It's not anywhere else. It's not up there, it's not down here. In other words, our mind is our very, very worst enemy. Mind here is bigger, it includes heart. And it also can be our very best friend. Or as one teacher I had put it, Dharma practice is turning our miserable karma into our magnificent Dharma. So it's a kind of alchemy. In other words, we have to start where we are. And if you don't like where you are, it's okay. But that's where you are, it's a fact. So you must start there. Anything else would be a fiction. It would be what you wish you were. Now you can see that. But more and more, we're trying to get comfortable with just the matter-of-factness, the ordinariness of exactly the way it is, and to learn how to appreciate and respect that. 
Why? Because that's what our life is in that given moment. It's not that the pots are so magnificently spiritual. It's that the quality of the way we relate to the pots and pans changes everything. It changes us. Uh, some years ago at uh, the Cambridge Center, um, we have these practice groups in the evening, and someone came back was in, after about eight weeks or so, it was a 10-week, uh, extremely excited, and said, uh, this person uh, was a cook, a professional cook, and said, uh, I was chopping the broccoli today, and suddenly I disappeared into the broccoli. It was just chopping. There was no self-consciousness. It wasn't contrived. It got, did my job beautifully, and it was just a pure joy of a, a unity of the activity of chopping and the broccoli. And I understand now how activity action can be uh, both dharma and functional at the same time. So then uh, is the lesson that we learn from that, let's all run to the next Chinese restaurant and start getting broccoli. It's not in the broccoli. It has nothing to do with broccoli. It has to do with the quality of mind that we bring to whatever it is. People have reported attaining enlightenment by seeing a leaf fall from a tree. So if we all run this fall and gather and watch a leaf fall, <laughs> do you think we'll all just get collective enlightenment? <laughs> I doubt it. It's not in the leaf. The, the, the world is teaching all the time, nonstop, 24-7. When we enable the mind to become more sensitive, more discerning, more alert and interested. And that world, first and foremost, includes us because it's through us that we experience the world. So this, the observation is not some cold little skill. It's the way we are. Okay. So choiceless awareness. We started off by just being with the breath. And we were with the breath, as those of you who were here from uh, the beginning, uh, we, were, we selected the whole body breathing, but many of you had other ways of working with the breathing, and that's fine. The purpose was to get, it, no matter what it is you were doing, it included some mindfulness, so it was valuable. And it included learning how to be with something that's happening in the present moment, something that's already here, which we call now. Okay. And in doing that, now we've selected the whole body because this approach where we're attempting to see practice in life as one thing is about whole people. It's about wholeness, W-H-O-L-E. And so being with the whole body won't be as precise as being at the nostrils. When you get good at the nostrils, I've done some of these. You can get concentrated very, very quickly, like pushing a button in an elevator. Uh, but you don't learn certain other things. Now, with the whole body and the breath, as we've been... Uh, it isn't as um, uh, circumscribed, a little area that you can z zone in on, focus in on. So you won't be as precise, and it may take you a while until you get really comfortable with it before you get that concentrated. But other things are, are learned, which we value. And so what we're learning is then from that place of the whole body sitting and breathing, the next step is simply to add what hasn't been t uh, included which is the mind, chirp, chirp, everything, whatever is there. It's mainly the mind-body the mind -body process that we're aware of. Um, and we're learning how to open up to it 
and to receive it exactly as it is. And choiceless, um, I'll use that term, choiceless in this sense, uh, you can then at that point use the, the, the body as a kind of anchor, many people, or just the breathing as a kind of anchor. Uh, Matthew used the term like a good friend that accompanies you into whatever is happening. For example, supposing fear turns up. For some people, the breath is always there, in, out, in, out. That's part of it. It's recurrent, and it's portable. It's wherever we are, it's there. It can be used. That's part of the beauty of it as a technique. Okay. So let's say fear turns up. Uh, with a little bit of practice, and a number of you are doing it, it's, it's a method the Buddha suggested, it's one method, of at the same time that you're with the breathing, you're with the fear. It's not either you're with the breath or you're with the fear. It's breathing in, I experience, fear is experienced, breathing out, fear is experienced. And the accompaniment of the breathing can sometimes cut down on a lot of unnecessary thinking, which can fan the flames of what's happening and make things much worse. Uh, and it also can be kind of soothing as it accompanies you into something that most of us, perhaps all of us, we, we don't want to. Who, who loves, oh, here comes fear. I just can't have enough of it. <laughs> so we need help. Community is a help. Friends are a help. Books are a help. Now and then, even a teacher may be a help. Who knows? But so this is something that you can use. And for some people, it really saves their life. I've seen it. And others feel, experience it as uh, a kind of an encumbrance. So you can, you can also just sit with no other instruction than that. So of course, you have a body. You feel it. The breath is still there. You feel that. But you, there's no place you're supposed to be. It's sometimes called a non-abiding mind. That means you have no particular home which is to say you're at home everywhere. Now, that is a state that is, for most of us, not so easy to begin with, unless you're very drawn to it for certain reasons. There are people who are relatively new to practice who are just drawn to this. Fine, let's, let's follow through on that. And there are others who it's best if they don't do that, and at a certain point may find that that's a good way to go. So there's no, but in any case, the power of the choiceless awareness is no agenda, none. So that means you're sitting there with nothing scheduled or planned. And what, we, and what mindfulness means to remember to turn to, turn to what? Whatever's happening in the, in the moment. And that keeps changing. The field keeps changing. And that's the challenge. Can we learn how to uh, enter into mindfulness more and more and not be controlled by the scenery, the passing show? all the clouds that come and go, all the different mind states, moods, which have a lot of practice in grabbing us and pulling us along. The train of thought, one of them. Our language gives it away. We get on the train. Here we're learning how to stay on the platform. And as soon as you get on the train, as soon as you realize that you're on the train, you're back on the platform. If that's bewildering, I can't help it. To me, it seems obvious, but that's because I'm very advanced. Okay. <laughs> okay. Um, so what we're learning is, first of all, since everything is changing, one of the central meanings of insight meditation is insight into the changing nature of all forms. We'll go into that more on Friday before we head home. Um, this is a powerful and very profound and obvious law. 
not only is the external world changing, but we're changing. The body is changing, the mind is changing, emotions are changing, climate, everything is changing. That's the nature, that's the way things are. Can we, to some degree, establish ourselves and be that which knows, which is also part of our humanness? And so what we're learning is, in addition to whatever the content is, there's a process which becomes more important than the content at a certain point. To begin with, we're fixated on the content. But as your practice ripens, you'll see that, wow, no matter what comes up, it also goes. No matter what it is, no thought stays forever, no emotion stays forever. I hate this place, I love this place. At a certain point, you realize what it is that the mind is. It's in constant flux. And with practice, uh, there's something that can become more and more stable, that can, can enjoy the show. It's quite a parade. And that's the beginnings of, of, of a lot of liberation. Now, present moment. Uh, the present moment keeps changing. If we just say, be in the present moment, sounds good, but the present moment is already past tense. I didn't even finish my sentence, and it's gone. Okay. So our ability to stay in the present is just a word. Even, there is no present. There's no future. I think it's a, a psychological future. There's clock time is helpful. The sun does rise and set and so forth. But the mind makes up psychological time. And because we believe in it, then it eats us. It makes up a future and it makes up a past. And it even makes up a present. I'm in the present. Okay. So just to stay awake is what we're learning and not to get caught in the passing show. Um, what we're learning by more and more being able to do this, the art of clear seeing starts getting developed and refined. Um, because, uh, as some of you know this, the Buddha was known, one of the epithets for the Buddha, as somebody who had mastered come what may seeing. That means no preferences. Able to just be with what's there because it's there. Well, that, that isn't, you don't start that way. You start off by having very strong preferences. I don't like this, I like this, I want to keep it, it goes anyway. I don't like this, I want it to go, it stays anyway. As one uh, ancient teacher put it, uh, we love flowers, but they die and wilt. We hate weeds, but they keep growing. <laughs> it was actually Dogen as well. Quite a, a genius. Um, so what is clear seeing? So let's go back a bit. And then I'd like to just work through this and give you an example, personal examples from my own life. And then I think that's enough for this evening. Um, <clears throat> our ability to see as clearly as we can manage has to begin with how we are. We, we can't make ourselves be what we aren't. You can't fake this one. So to begin with, everyone is seeing whatever it is you're seeing, me seeing you, you seeing me right now, to begin with without any training through your, through your psyche. Uh, so we start there. We, 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 we start with seeing the body, seeing the mind, hearing sounds. But that's going to be experienced uh, based on the conditioning that we have. Uh, it's inescapable. It's coloring what's going on. So different personalities. 
will view the same event differently. It's the same event, and yet, uh, and each person feels that they're seeing it accurately. They're seeing it through their, let's say, their psyche. With practice, that starts to smooth out, and our psychological tendencies, likes and dislikes, starts to lose, starts to lose its power. And the mind becomes clearer. And we might even feel I have a very clear mind. And the, uh, I'm simplifying this. It, it doesn't go so in, in a, such a neat and tidy way. But uh, it's not completely clear and never will be as long as there's separation between the observer and the observed. And to begin with, the Buddha is a very skillful teacher. It's not that he says from day one, don't be attached to anything. Attachment is suffering. If you read the suttas, a brilliant teacher. I'm sure there have been other people just as fully enlightened. He probably is one of the greatest teachers because he allows for attachment. He allows for certain coarse attachments that of necessity we have to begin with. We can't begin with what, where we aren't. And I can say what is until I'm blue in the face. But typically what happens is the mind will think its way into what isn't and prefer what isn't to what is. Okay, so what the Buddha does is he allows for this separation between the observer and the observed. And then as the practice ripens, matures, begins to flower, um, that, first of all, let's make it clear what I mean by the observer. That's the yogi. That's each one of us. Uh, so that sounds good. And people are Vipassana yogis. That's not a bad title to have if you like this stuff. Okay. Um, but you know what it is if you look closely? It's just the ego disguised as a Vipassana yogi. And it may have special pants and a special outfit, Birkenstock sandals, you know, uh, or in other robes or whatever. But it's the ego that is in its most recent incarnation. He, this guy likes, he wants to be a yogi. I'll be a yogi. I'm shameless. I don't care. <laughs> So the ego comes here, it hears the instructions, and it wants to do it right. Okay. And the Buddha tolerates that. He allows a certain course. Course here is not derogatory, just descriptive. Attachments. Uh, so that we're seeing there's a, a, a very subtle film between the ego, uh, the me, who's the meditator, and that which is being seen, the subject and the object, another language. Okay. Now, even that is a tremendous help, tremendous help. But as practice unfolds, and even if you're relatively a newcomer, sometimes what happens is you have your moments when that self-consciousness, and to begin with, part of why, a large part of why there's self-consciousness is because it's a new skill you're learning, and you want to master it. Learning how to ride a bicycle when you're a child, you know, you're holding on like that, and at a certain point you ride with no hands. But to begin with, it's quite contrived. And there's a lot of self-consciousness and a lack of confidence. You don't know how to do it. And then we have training wheels and we have water wings. It's, I don't know if they use those anymore. But those of us from uh, Piltdown days, we used to have that. Okay. So um, we do the best that we can. But in, if I could speak in general terms, uh, what tends to happen is sense of separateness of a me that's looking at the world starts to wither away with practice. And the seeing is clearest when you're not there. It's not, it sounds mysterious, but it means there isn't a self-consciousness there. 
the first time I experienced this very dramatically uh, was, was with one of my teachers in Thailand, Ajahn Mahabuo, with the breath. And maybe some of you have experienced this. I don't want to blow it out of proportion. You know, that doesn't mean that you're now, we have to worship you if you've experienced this, or me. What happens is you become so uh, attuned to the breathing. It becomes such a joy to just be sitting and breathing. You relax into it, and there's continuity, and it becomes effortless that the breather falls away. And it's just breathing happening. It's a wonderful, wonderful feeling of being free. It's temporary because the person who's doing the breathing is still ego. Okay, you, you, I just found out there's cash value in the breath. The Buddha said so. He must know. He's enlightened. I'll take, I'm in that. I'm into it. Okay. Uh, that falls away, and there's just something in us that is bright and clear and at home. And it experienced whatever is there. In this case, it was the breath. Uh, it could be anything. And more and more, the quality of seeing uh, is not obscured by any mental preoccupations, whether knowledge, uh, whether it's knowledge or whether it's uh, an attitude. Let me give you two examples. And then, yeah. These are personal. And the reason I'm presenting them is that they were very powerful for me. And it really happened. And so you can see that uh, this is, I hope that you see that this is quite practical. It's meant to be applied in absolutely every aspect of life. Small stuff and very, very difficult stuff. Uh, my father lived to be 90. During his last few years, he developed Alzheimer's. He was quite alert before that, too alert for my taste. <laughs> or as I couldn't get away with anything. Okay. Uh, and then he started to lose it. And he was in a nursing home. And he was diagnosed with Alzheimer's. And so uh, my wife and I and um, my mother and my sister and brother, you know, we would visit him as often as we could, pretty often. Uh, we all loved him, and he, for the most part, he made no sense. He had, you know, he was just, you know, what he was talking about. And being the kind of person I was, and less now, but still, I started reading everything I could get my hands on about Alzheimer's, all these diagnostic, and it's helpful because it was teaching me something about what my father had. Yeah, my, that's true about him. Now, that doesn't seem to hold up, and. I got very steeped in the medical literature on Alzheimer's. And when we would visit, it took me quite a while to catch on to myself, to begin to see that I was seeing him through a diagnostic category. And when I would leave, it was an unfulfilling feeling. Not, of course, that he had uh, Alzheimer's was not fun. But the fact that I would leave, and I, my love for him was still there, but I didn't feel as connected as I was used to for my entire life. We had a good, a good relationship. And it took a while until I saw what was happening is this diagnostic category was in the mind. It's a high-class form of conditioning. My form, because I read about it, someone who doesn't read these things might not have this. I had it. And once I saw that my father doesn't have uh, Alzheimer's, that's made up by humans. It's a useful contrivance for some purposes, but if you reify it and make it then, my, then it's an identity, then it's a self. My father, the Alzheimer's patient, and then I'm the son of the Alzheimer's patient. And then before you know it, 
is an unreality there. As soon as I saw through it in myself, not, my father was just the same. As soon as I saw through it in, his, in myself, it lost its power. It fell away, and I was connected again. I could really see him. Because, uh, and the love was readily available. And it led to interesting side of, uh, uh, by, um, uh, other, other positive effects. For example, um, he was always a very generous person. And since he, after he contracted this uh, malady of, of the brain, um, he became very preoccupied with money. Well, he was in a nursing home. He didn't need any money. And he would constantly complain. He would say, I reached back in the back of my pocket to get a few bucks, and all I feel, feel is my behind. You can see where I got where I am. <laughs> so, I, yeah, okay. Uh, I have worse than that, to, but I'll spare you. Okay. So he would just say, can you give me a few dollars? Just a few, and the nurses would come in, don't give it to him, don't give it to him. It'll just, it'll, he doesn't take it out of his trousers and it'll get flushed down the laundry or he even goes in the toilet. It's a waste of your money. So I listened to them like a fool. Uh, after seeing through the diagnostic thing, it's like thinking out of the box. I think we use that phrase. Okay. Uh, suddenly I realized, why not give him $5 or $10? And then they would say, but, it, it, but uh, it, 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 it'll just go to waste. He's gonna, it'll be washed out, it'll be flushed down. Don't waste your money on him. And my, my mother, everyone else, was agreeing with the staff. And uh, finally, I gave it to them. And I got criticized on the way home. They were saying, what a waste of money. I said, wait a minute. Did you see his face when I gave him the money? Did you see how happy it made him? I said, yeah. And he said, did you see how his posture changed just by being just $5? I said, yeah. And I said, are the pharmaceutical drugs as effective as that? <laughs> they weren't. And so I just kept doing that. The other one was, um, he was a very funny man. And, but now, in ha having this affliction, he would still try to be funny. It made no sense. And we would just sit there, you know, like, <laughs> you know, it was illogical. There was, no, it was nothing funny. And he would start laughing. And we would just sit there. You know, we were very uncomfortable. Okay. So finally, after this diagnostic thing cleared up, he would start laughing, and so would I. Okay, and then he'd laugh, and I would, and he'd get happier, and he'd make another nonsensical, you know, stupid joke, and I would roar, and he would roar, and then when we went home, again, I got criticized by my family. He said, uh, did you get Dad's jokes? <laughs> so I said, no, I didn't know what he was talking about. And he said, then why are you laughing? He says, where is the law that you have to understand something in order to laugh? <laughs> okay, so it can be very liberating. Okay, last one. My mother, just to be gender equal, equal who I also had a good connection with. She was also 90, and she was dying. She only had a few, it turned out about a week left. And she was extremely weak. Her, her, her mind was fine, totally intact. Uh, most of her body was paralyzed. She had one arm free, and it didn't have much strength. It sort of from here on down worked. And I was holding her hand. The whole family was gathered around her. We didn't know how much longer she had. And um, Mr. Dharma teacher uh, gives her this very intelligent, 
coming from knowledge, again, like all the you know, stuff I've, I've learned, uh, I was doing a really wonderful Buddhist teaching. I said, Mom, because she was, her breathing was belabored, and we were all, it was just painful to be with her around that. And she was uh, hanging in there. The doctor said she should have gone a while ago, but she was hanging in there. And so I held her hand with one hand, and I sent her love, of course, we all did. And then I said, Mom, your body has served you well. I think I got this from Ajahn Chah or someone, you know. <laughs> okay, so don't listen to anything that we say. I mean, question it. So I said, your body has served you well for, for 90 years. Relax. You can let, the more I told her about that she's 90, that she's going to, that weak hand that I thought, you know, I thought she was going to, I thought she was going to crush my hand. I, I didn't know where, she didn't want to hear that. And she became she was almost never angry at me. And her, she just was squeezing, and she was going like that. Don't ever talk about my age. I don't, you know, the vanity doesn't go away because you're 90. So uh, at a certain point, duh, I got it. A light bulb went off, and I dropped the, the intelligent, wonderful Dharma talk, totally inappropriate. She couldn't even pronounce Buddhism with her thick Jewish accent. Uh, Buddhism is how it came out. Okay. <laughs> okay. So uh, then I said, Mom, you, you've been a, a very loving person to everyone. Uh, and we all sent her love, and she was happy. That wasn't because she had training in metta. It's because it was just common sense. You know, I saw her for who she was, that she was a person dying, and she was around people who loved her. Show it. Because, and that she understood, this thing about 90 and served you well. What is he talking about? <laughs> Okay, so there's hope for all of us, but you, if we can learn from the situations and our attempt to teach the meditation is our attempt to equip ourselves to be able to see clearly, but also just awareness alone is not enough. The awareness has to be coupled with an interest, an interest in your life, an interest in how you're living, an interest in learning, and uh, let's leave it at that. Uh, more to go about relationships when we on Friday, because right now, if we start in a relationship, you'll all be home. Your bodies will be here, but you'll all be home. So let's leave it. Can we have a few moments of silence, please? Thank you for your attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.